Welcome to the Homegirls. Four top producing mega realtors, moms, wives, and friends talking about real estate and real life. Angela, Kristen, Jessica, and Lindsay are in the top 1% of all real estate agents and would be honored to receive your real estate referrals in Colorado. Join us as we drop a new episode every Monday anywhere podcasts are aired, in real life on YouTube, and connect with us every day on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HomegirlsCO. Thanks for listening. We love you. Hey guys, it's your homegirls here. We are talking to our homeboy, Jeffrey Zicker today out of New York City. We are so excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation and get to talk a little bit about New York and Colorado real estate together. Well, we, uh, we have so many questions for you from triplement to your other business opportunities to all things New York City that I am I'm obsessed with New York City. So the next time I come, I'm going to make you go out on a lunch date with me. And let's do it. Yes. Yes. I love it. That would be awesome. <laughs> so why don't we talk a little bit about your background, your production, when you got licensed, you know, just kind of all the minutia yeah. that we have to get out of the way before we can get into the fun stuff. Awesome. So I actually, I was born and raised in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, and I am the son of a real estate agent in Las Vegas. Um, my mom's been in the business for about 25 years in Las Vegas, both as an agent and as a managing broker. Um, I, I went to art school in Vegas and I originally moved to New York City to be an actor. I went to college in Colorado, went to college in Greeley for four years, um, got a theater degree there and, and moved here to, to try and have a successful acting career. And I had a good run. I just... Um, it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so I originally got into the real estate industry to fund my acting career. And after like six months in the business, I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I haven't looked back and I have zero regrets. Um, so I've been in the business now just a little over five years, um, both as a rental agent. We can talk about that too, because rentals in New York are huge. Um, and as a sales agent, and then I also own another couple companies here in New York as well, both on the corporate furnished rental side business and I co-own a laundry company uh, as well. So kind of a jack of all trades. I am, I want to hear about these other companies just because I feel like they're so like New York specific. And so it'll be Very really much. for us to talk about that. Yeah. Um, so why don't we just kind of dive right into the rental scene? Because here in Colorado, we don't have anything to do with rentals. We all four get referrals constantly for rentals and we're like, we can't do anything with them. And so it's kind of the wild, wild west out here as far as um, rentals go. So talk to us about that. You were the number one agent your first year in real estate for rentals, correct? Yeah, at my old firm. It, I, I was originally, my first firm, I was with Century 21, uh, with the Manhattan Century 21 franchise here. And uh, within my first year, I became the, the top volume agent for rental transactions and really started to break into sales in year two. Um, homeownership rate across the United States is about 64.5% was the last stat that I saw, um, leaving the other 35% as either renters or you know residents of public housing. In New York City, that's flipped. So it's almost 65% rental rate versus about a 35% home ownership rate here. Um, it's really hard to qualify to buy in in New York City and, and the equity gains are very slow and steady over a long period of time. Um, so most people turn to renting. So as a result of that, as agents, um, we operate on a commission structure that is unlike anywhere else in the country. 
when it comes to rentals. You can actually earn a really, really healthy living doing rentals here. Um, so on a rental transaction, we collect anywhere between one month's rent up to 15% of the annual rent. Um, so on a $3,000 rental, you know, the commission could be as much as $5,400. Um, so you have a lot of agents that are, you know, doing rentals that are earning a healthy living. Nobody here is getting rich doing rentals. I want to stress that. Um, but, but you can earn a healthy living doing it. And the the rental market here is so insanely complex because the amount of regulation that that goes into our rental market there's a lot of shadow listings and like one of the largest landlords in new york city they don't even advertise to the general public they only have a broker's login so you know you're talking about four billion dollars worth of multifamily inventory that unless you're working with an agent you don't even know exists um so that's really kind of how agents have become extraordinarily valuable in helping guide people through the rental process in new york city what is an average rental price there for like, let's say like a one bedroom unit? Yep. Median one bedroom is about $3,700 a month. <laughs> uh, and that's in Manhattan. And then our median sales price as of the beginning of this month was about 1.41 million. Wow. And how many realtors do you guys have there in New York City? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like real realtors, not like, you know, ones that are practicing. Not, well, you know, here's, funny thing. here's a funny thing. None of us are realtors. Nobody in New York City belongs to NAR, so uh, which is the most interesting thing. We don't use the MLS. Um, we have our own systems here outside of the rest of the country. Uh, but to answer your question, we have about 10,000 licensed agents in Manhattan. Um, you have about 20,000 amongst the five boroughs, and there's 70,000 in New York State. And Manhattan is under, under 30 square miles. Yeah. yeah, it's it's 14 miles long by three miles wide. So if I'm, and I'm blonde, so forgive my bad math, but like you basically just said one agent per every mile in your city? Pretty much, that's about right. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. It's, it's so, extraordinarily competitive. So I just want to back up really fast and touch on the fact that none of you guys are what we, you know, realtors. Yeah. Um, and you guys don't have an MLS there because I feel like there's always like for agents outside of the New York City market, and I'm speaking for myself here, there's always been like this shroud of mystery of like what the hell goes on in New York City. And so there's obviously a very valid reason why you guys are not a part of the real estate, the National Association of Realtors. Um, and it's because you don't have an MLS, which would mean yep. you guys are, they just came down with this coming soon thing that we've all been struggling with. So without the MLS, you guys, and without being a realtor, you guys don't have to abide by those guidelines. Yep, that's exactly right. So most agents within Manhattan belong to the Real Estate Board of New York. That is kind of our over, oversight and governing body that everybody belongs to. Um, it's also what keeps people accountable and, and ensures universal cobrokes across the market. But not everybody does. In Queens and Brooklyn, it's the freaking wild, wild west out there. Um, most agents out in Queens and Brooklyn and Staten Island, they do not belong to Revney. And so it is not uncommon to like, log into the RLS or go on to Street Easy or Zillow, which I can talk about Street Easy. It's, a, mm -hmm. it's another platform that is owned by Zillow that kind of dominates the market here in New York. Um, you know, you'll see a, a one and a half percent Cobroke commission and they're, they're taking 4% on their side. And you're like, wait, what? That doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. um, so it is kind of the wild, wild west out there. It's, it's, it's very different. How much what of is the- a shadow listing? You mentioned that earlier. What is a shadow listing? So shadow listings are kind of what I like to refer to as open and va vacant and available inventory that is not being publicly advertised. Um, so for example, there is a 
very large landlord here, I don't mind saying them by name, they're called Beach Lane Management, they're owned by Mark Sharpman. It's one of the largest real estate portfolios in New York. Uh, none of their listings are advertised to the general public. The only way you will ever know about them is where, if you're working with a tenant's agent. Um, and that is more common than most people like to believe. When you log on to StreetEasy and you look at available rental inventory in New York, you're probably only seeing about 75 to 80% of what's actually out there. Can you explain um, or just go through, go through rent control for people who don't know what, <laughs> yeah, high level or as deep as you want to get on it. But, you know, for people who, and this is, could, it's really political, but for people that don't live in a city like New York and know what yeah. that is. And then do you know how much, like how many units or how much percentage of it is rent controlled? I do. Yeah. So, so rent control technically ended in 1974. Um, what we have now is a program called rent stabilization, and we just had sweeping laws uh, that that completely overhauled rent stabilization in New York City. So there's roughly roughly one million units of multifamily inventory are rent stabilized in New York City. Um, there's there's conflicting opinions about this even within within the real estate community. I I am on the side that I tend to believe the rent stabilization actually does more harm to the overall market than it does good, um, but. Let me, let me kind of explain a little bit about what changed with our laws and like what happened. So in the 1970s, they initiated rent control. Rent control, or actually, I'm sorry, it was initiated in the 1950s and ended in the early 70s. Rent control basically was a lock on your rent. So back in the 1950s, if you were paying $300 for an apartment in the West Village, that apartment is locked in forever and ever. That went away in, in, in the early 70s. Um, and what they started was a program called stabilization, which just controlled the increases, the government sets, you know, maximum amounts of increases year over year. So let me kind of give you an example of the old system and we'll and break out your, your uh, pen and paper here uh, as I'm gonna kind of go on a little bit of a math journey. But um, under the way the old laws worked for rent stabilization, rent could increase for any one of four reasons. So if a landlord had a rent stabilized apartment, they could raise the rent for individual apartment improvements, meaning money that they invested into the apartment itself. They could raise rents for major capital improvements. So we're talking about, you know, um, boilers to the building or a new roof or common areas, right? And you can pass that on as a percentage to all the rent stabilized units in the building. Uh, then you also have your annual increases. Um, so the rent guidelines board here votes year over year on annual rent increases, usually two to 4% per year on, on a one or two year lease. And then you have what was called a vacancy increase. So every time somebody left uh, a rent stabilized apartment, landlords would get a 20% vacancy increase. Let me tell you what just happened in June 14th because it has been Armageddon to the rental market in New York City. Um, so prior to the, these laws changing, let me give you a real world example that I know of. Let's take a two bedroom apartment in the West Village of Manhattan that somebody has been living in since 1964, okay? And that apartment, was rent stabilized and had a max legal rent of let's call it right around $1,000 a month. That tenant passes away, okay? Under the old law, that apartment, you would get a 20% vacancy increase the moment that they were gone, right? So now you get $1,200 a month. Then let's say individual apartment improvements. The way it worked was, I think it was on buildings with less than 32 units, you got a 140th increase for every dollar you spent. So let's say you spent 40 grand, right? So that gives you a thousand dollar increase. So now we're at 22, wait, what did I say? We're at 2240. Yes. Uh, then major capital improvements. You used to get 6% spread across all your rent stabilized apartments. Let's call it another $50. So now we're, we're now at 2300. 
um, plus whatever the rent guidelines board votes on. A two bedroom on West 10th Street in the West Village is worth about $4,000 a month market value. But under rent stabilization, that unit would be capped out at 2,300 bucks, right? I know there were different increases in scenarios in which you would get maxigo rents sometimes that were way higher than market value because landlords would just keep pumping money into them and then you know people moved out and so the vacancy increase kept getting applied and so you would get apartments with a maxigo rent of like $4,400 a month when value was only like 3,000, right? But taking this example on West 10th, that apartment was still massively below market value. Now, under the new law, um, vacancy increase, that 20% that you would get, gone. Individual apartment improvements, they are capped at $15,000 every 32 years. So you can get a maximum $58 increase every 32 years. MCIs are capped at 2% and then you just get whatever the rent guidelines votes on. Votes on. So now instead of that apartment being 2,300, now it's listed at 1,058. And you know what 15 grand in renovations buys you in New York? It gets no. you a bathroom. So what's happening is, is we have all this inventory coming to market that yes, is very cheap, but it's in really bad shape. And you've basically just entirely removed landlords incentive to invest in any stabilized housing. And here's the problem. Because of the way that the old system was created, you had a lot of landlords that were improving buildings and improving apartments. And you had a lot of really beautiful rent stabilized units across the city. Now, because those are capped, now the fair market units, right, that are not subject to rent regulation, they're going through the roof. Oh. Prices, prices are absolutely skyrocketing across the city in rents because we've artificially constrained inventory. So there's a lot of different schools of thought about rent stabilization. I, I understand there are a lot of protections in the law to protect against, you know, predatory landlords. And there are a lot of jerks out there. Um, you know, there's a landlord that just served three years for tenant harassment and tax evasion. Um, and and it's, those laws were intended to protect against people like him. So I understand that side of the coin, but at the same time, we've kind of artificially constrained our market here and it, it's made it even harder for both investors and tenants alike. Wow. You guys have kind of moved into a little bit more of a seller's market in New York City, correct? Oh, no, it is, it is a it, buyer's market. That's what I meant. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. It is a buyer's market. Um, I'm so used to Colorado that, yeah, buyers. Okay. It's because of this specifically that this has really catapulted. Partially, partially. The, the other thing that really started kind of a panic sell-off is about in 2017 uh, was when tax reform hit. Mm -hmm. Because as you guys know, uh, state and local taxes are are capped at $10,000 for deduction, and we have one of the highest individual tax rates in the entire United States. Um, and then in addition to that, your property tax deductions are also capped as well. Most people who own in New York City own in what are called co-ops, and we can kind of dive into that ownership structure as well. That was my next question. Yeah, but a lot of these co-ops, they have underlying mortgages on the building, and so a lot of people were very fearful about your monthly maintenance charges in these co-ops going through the roof. Um, and so it started a panic sell-off in 2017 and 2018. Mm -hmm. um, and people have just been leaving. We've, we've seen, seen a net migration out of New York City in the past couple of years. Um, I, I hope that trend reverses. Um, I love this town and I don't wanna see people fleeing it. So I'm, I'm hoping there's some policy changes that occur um, to, to keep people here um, and, and keep money and investment and capital in New York City. But um, yeah, that was really kind of what started the sell-off. Isn't it incredible how, this is like a soapbox for me, how people don't understand how tax legislature affects the housing market 
and the economy for yep. every n normal human being. It's Massively. wild. Yeah. I wish that people, I'm venturing to guess you're somewhere close to our age. I wish that people our age would get more educated and learn about how um, voting today will affect their life 10 years from now. Um, and 100%. how politics affects economics more than almost anything else. Um, but I would love to hear you explain what a co-op board is for people that don't yep. know. So like my understanding of it basically is like the five of us are on the co-op board together. And if the six person wants to come in, we all get to vote and say no, that they can't. And like, I've heard crazy stories. I don't know if this is true about like reviewing people's financials and their like, you know, who they know and like who oh, their yeah. spouses and their children. And like, so tell me this, cause this is weird. Yeah. Okay. So 75% of Manhattan's ownership market share is co-op. Um, the other 25% is condo. So let me kind of dive into this because there's a, a fundamental ownership structure that's totally different between real property and a co-op. So let's say that you're buying a condo in New York City, right? And, or you're buying a single family home in Brooklyn or two family home in Brooklyn. When you're buying that, you're buying real property. You physically own the four walls that you live within, right? Let's say worst case scenario, the economy implodes and the bank comes back and they're coming to foreclose on you. They're gonna foreclose on those four walls because you own real property. When you buy a new co-op, what you're buying is you're actually buying stock within a corporation. So you, you technically don't own the actual unit that you reside within you own stock within the building, and then you are leasing back the space from the building. Uh, so you're a shareholder rather than an owner of an individual unit. The reason this kind of came about is because it makes ownership a lot more affordable in New York City when you have that type of cooperative housing. Um, but, so let's take my same example that I gave talking about, you know, a bank foreclosing, you know, if you defaulted on your mortgage. In a co-op, if you defaulted on your mortgage, they can't foreclose on that individual unit. The whole building would go into foreclosure because you own stock in a corporation rather than an individual unit. So going into what you were talking about, about you know, a co-op board being able to decide who can or can't live there, yes, you're exactly right. So to buy in New York City requires that you are incredibly financially solvent. Most co-ops have very strict uh, down payment requirements. It's very rare to find a co-op here that will let you put less than 20% down. Um, many are 70% finance or 60% finance. There's some buildings on Park Avenue and Fifth Ave that are, are zero finance buildings. They are cash only. Um, and then- How does this not violate fair housing? Yeah, that's what I was that was my question. Yeah, how is that not a fair housing violation? <laughs> Number one, well, it's, a it's not. I mean, it's not real property. That's that's the thing. Is is you're buying stock in a corporation. You're not. You're not buying real property. And they have corporate rules. Interesting. Yeah. So so basically, what happens is is when let's say you want to make an offer on a co-op, right? Let's say you're going into an eighty percent finance building. The co-op is going to usually want to make sure that you have a maximum debt to income ratio usually 29 to 30% at worst. Um, some buildings are tighter at like 27 and 28%. And then they also usually wanna see that you have at least two years of post-closing liquidity for, of both mortgage and maintenance in the bank. Now your maintenance in a co-op includes your property taxes. So that includes some of your utilities, that includes salaries to your doorman, to your, your common spaces um, and your property taxes, right? Cause it's, you own stock in that corporation. It's not real property. Um, so they usually want to see when you go to buy it, 
that you have at least two years of your mortgage and maintenance post-closing liquid. Um, some buildings are stricter than others. And then they also usually have really stringent um, sublet policies. So in terms of like, let's say, you know, you need to end up renting out your unit. Some buildings will require that you live in it for three years and then you can rent it out for two years. And then you have to be owner occupied again. So um, it's, it's a whole different world. And that's, that's where agents really build our values because when you wanna buy into a co-op, you have to pass the board interview. And so my job, really is to make sure that your financial application package for the board is board approvable. Um, sometimes those packages become like 500 to like a thousand pages thick. It's, it's insane. The amount of paperwork and the amount of trees that we kill for co-op application packages is-, is You nuts. fill those out, like how does that work? Like it's not like a contract. So you go through and fill that out. Do you sit with your client and go through it? Like what does that look like? So what, what you have to do is you have to fill out an asset and liability statement. Uh, when when applying to buy into a co-op and then every building is different but most of them will require that you provide statements for every asset and liability usually anywhere from three months all the way to a year back so you know if you have 11 bank accounts and they're requiring six months of full-length statements and three years of tax returns for all of your your bank accounts your investments and then all of your liabilities that package gets real thick real fast Wow. But what is the really... average of taxes there, like on average annually? It, oh, you know, it's weird. Manhattan's tax rates are really high. Um, but Brooklyn and Queens, the taxes are ultra low. Um, actually, like really surprisingly low in some places. It really depends on the individual municipality. Um, there's, there's some areas that are as high as 2%, like in Westchester County. Um, but some are, you know, floating right around one. It, it just really depends on, on the individual area. So when you say super low, like what's low? Um, let's say, for example, I was taking a condo client out this past week. They're shopping two bedrooms in Park Slope up to about 1.2 million. The taxes on that were about $700 a month on most of the units we were looking at. So let's see, what is that? About eight, a little over, yeah, right around 8,000 a year. Yeah, I'll double what I pay, which is yeah. 500 a year. <laughs> right. Double what I pay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a little nuts. Um, and then don't forget, we also have a city income tax here too. So our, our tax burdens here are, are insane between federal, state, and local. So going back to the boards though, can they really do all the stuff that like you see on TV where they are like vetting you personally to see yeah. if you're a good vibe for the building? Like they ask where your kids go to school and what your husband does for a living and like is that a real thing i had and i cannot say their name i'm so sorry um i had a celebrity client that i worked with about two years ago and he was a renter he was not looking to purchase um but renters still have to go through the same board approval process uh if you're if you're subletting in a co-op and i was told from the listing agent who also happened to be a resident in the building and sat on the board that they would never approve this person because they don't want the traffic and they don't want, you know, the celebrity of, of this person living inside of their building. So yeah, they, they get really tight um, sometimes. But again, it depends on the building. Like there's some that are really liberal and lenient and, you know, have more condo-like rules. And then there's some that are extraordinarily exclusive. That's wild. Right? So I assume that this requires an agent to not just be knowledgeable but 
basically have like a hyper niche, right? So you yeah. can't just like jump in as a brand new agent and be like, oh yeah, I'm going to sell the whole city. That just no. doesn't happen there, right? No. And it's, it's such a trial by fire city. Like I, I've been in the business now for five years. I don't consider myself a long-term veteran, not like my, my mom who's been in it for 25. I think she's probably forgotten more about real estate than I'll ever hope to learn. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm still learning new niches of the city every single day, despite the fact that I usually do, you know, between 60 to 80 transactions a year, uh, between both rentals and sales. So, um, yeah, it's, there's, there's some parts that are very, very niche. What do you do to stand out? I mean, without, you know, there's so many agents there and there's so many, you know, let's be honest, big names from TV shows. Um, what do you do to separate yourself from that pack? Consultative selling. I am, I, I view my role so much more as, as a consultant and, and a financial advisor um, than as a salesperson. And there's so much competition in the city. There are a lot of agents out there that are very salesy with this job. And, and unfortunately, real estate agents in New York have kind of a, a rough reputation because of, of the rental system and because of broker fees and rental systems. Um, you get a lot of pushback when, when you're trying to find somebody to work with you uh, as, as a potential buyer client because they're like, oh, well, I have to pay your commission. And it's like, no, no, you don't. That's, that's in a rental transaction. That's not in a sales transaction. So, um, you know, really my big thing is I, I'm very tight within my sphere of influence. Um, and I really try to act more as a consultant and a fiduciary than, than just as a salesperson. And I find that here that really sometimes can set you apart from a lot of other agents in the city. Just from caring about people. That's, I think that's the main, that's the point. novel idea, right? <laughs> just treat people how you want to be treated. And I think that's where you're supported, right? Like, and everybody wants to go shopping with their friend rather than being sold to, right? Sorry, I'm getting texts. Uh, my apologies. Um, so everybody wants to go shopping with a friend rather than being sold to, right? And, and that's, that's one big part of it. But I tell every client, I'm, I'm not always here to make you feel warm and fuzzy. That's going to come too. Most of my clients end up becoming my friend, but I'm here to help protect the largest financial investment that you're going to make in one of the most expensive cities in America um, that, that is very intricate and has a lot of really insane ins and outs compared to any other real estate market in the country. Absolutely. So do 60 to 80 transactions a year. Is that what I heard you say? Yeah. Between rentals and sales, about 60 to 80. So what is the average agent in New York City doing, like from a transactional perspective? Do you even know? Because it doesn't matter. No, it, it depends on whether you're doing majority rentals or sales. Um, my business is probably about 60, 40 in terms of rentals and sales. Um, so it, it really kind of depends. Like we have some agents in our office that, you know, they're only doing eight to 10 transactions a year, but those transactions are all between two to $5 million, you know, so they're still doing huge numbers. Um, I also know a rental agent that, did like a little over 120 rentals last year in our office and their GCI was still like in the low 300s. You know what I mean? So like really depends. That's a lot of work for only 300,000 in GCI. Wow. That's incredible. Um, what would you tell someone that was trying to get into that market as, as a new agent and was thinking about getting a license because they have a good social media or something and they thought that this would be a great opportunity for them as a, is to get into real estate. What would you tell them? And it, honestly. Yeah, honestly, there are so many people that try to get into this business because they think it's a way to, to make some quick and easy money in New York. And like, 
just because you have a license doesn't mean that you're qualified in this industry. Um, it, it is not a part-time job here. It is not the type of thing that you can ever, ever, ever do part-time. And I know so many people that, that try to do it that way. Um, so I tell a lot of new agents, unless you're willing to commit yourself 16 hours a day, six days a week, especially for that first year to two years in this business, this probably isn't the right move for you um, just because that's really what it takes to get yourself off the ground and, and running here because there is so much competition. Yeah. And the other thing too, I envy you guys so much that being in a, in a market with homes, if, that, if I were in that scenario, there would be holes in my shoes from door knocking. Um, I, I swear, we can't do that here. You don't have the ability to door knock um, yeah. and network in some ways like you do in, in a community like you do in Colorado because things are doorman buildings or they're double locked front door security. And if you're knocking on someone's door, they're like, what the hell are you doing here? Um, you know, so that's, it's a very different dynamic. It's really all about who you know and the connections you make. Awesome. So let's talk about Triplement for a little bit. Let's talk yes. about brokerage. Um, they have some of the most incredible technology as far as a brokerage goes. So they're relatively, they're kind of a baby brokerage at this point. <laughs> to share with us all the things Triplement. I, okay, so first of all, I moved to Triplement four months ago. Um, I had been with Century 21 for the past almost five years. And, you know, Century 21 is the largest global real estate brand in the world. And, you know, being at a large global brand in New York City, like part of the reason I went there is I figured, you know, the international referral connections would really make a big difference. Triple Mint is fundamentally changing the way that people approach buying and selling real estate. Um, and, and that's why I joined this firm. So the big thing about us is that we are leveraging data to change this process from before a home ever gets listed. So uh, let me talk a little bit about our technology and kind of how we use that to our advantage. So um, first, our two founders, David and Phil, have a very Mark Zuckerberg-y story. Um, they both attended Yale and, and road crew for Yale. Um, and both of them originally were software developers by trade and, and were techies. Um, you know, David grew up around the real estate industry, but you know, they're, they're really tech guys at their core. Um, and so what they did was they've created a program called Black Diamond. Black Diamond is a predictive listing technology that we have that effectively works to predict when people are most likely to sell their homes. So we have a group of full-time data scientists that operate Black Diamond on a daily basis. And every single homeowner in New York City is input into this. So we're using both data that we buy and public, publicly owned data, right, that anybody can access to use predictive analytics to figure out when people are most likely to sell. So Black Diamond gives people a score from zero to 100. And when they reach a certain threshold, um, our research sales and development team will start to contact them and say, hey, our algorithm said that you are looking to potentially sell, are you? Um, then from that, we can, we, we have another platform that I know you were talking about the coming soon thing um, that is called our pre-market platform. These are sellers that we have reached out to because of Black Diamond that maybe aren't really willing to sell yet and don't want to go through the whole, you know, open house drama and like having to do private showings at six o'clock on a Tuesday night. But if somebody came along for the right number, they would consider selling, right? And so they go into our pre-market platform, which we talked about, we don't have a unified MLS in New York City. So people can go onto Triplement's website, triplement.com, and you can search from a ton of pre-market properties that are not going to be available anywhere else. 
From that, we also do buyer lead generation that helps feed our pre-market platform. So we're doing a tremendous amount of transactionary volume um, with properties that don't even hit the market. And then a lot of the ones that we do end up listing that we've tested out on our pre-market platform, we're selling close to 40 days earlier than most of our competition because of our pre-market platform. We're able to test that price before we start day one on that listing counter online. Um, so we really know what price is going to start to garner buyer traction well before we start that day count and it starts counting against you. Wow. If you guys don't have an MLS, like what, like you're talking about, like a, this is crazy to me. Like, so if you don't have an MLS and we're talking about like days on market and things like that, where is that data coming from? Street Easy. Street Easy dominates our market uh, and they are owned by Zillow. It, it's a public listing platform um, and almost every listing in New York City is going to be on Street Easy. Uh, I have a love-hate relationship with them. Um, just like we do with Zillow. Yeah, yeah just like right. we do with Zillow. But we also have our platform called the RLS. If you belong to Rebney, we have the residential listing service through RLS, which is very much like an MLS um, that, that listings get input that from there onto the RLS and then get syndicated out to Street Easy, Zillow, Trulia, Homes.com, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you not have a centralized MLS? Like yeah. what? A lot of brokerages have fought against it um, because they want to protect their listings. Mm -hmm. And now Rebney, uh, whom I often love, um, but they protect against it as well because they, we use the RLS. We're using their system. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a wild, wild west scenario. Wow. I kind of like it. I, I mean, I think that they're, I think to sell in a climate like that too, you have to be a more creative person. And I think that, that's, yeah. that I think that you get to be a little bit more, um, I don't know, just creative and have more fun with what you're doing because you're not nailed into this pigeonhole that's MLS. Exactly. And the other thing, you know, speaking of, you know, pigeonholed into the things you're doing, the other thing that I really love about Triplemint is we have, we also have a full-time staff of 10 on our marketing department. Um, Triplemint's marketing is some of the most beautiful marketing I have ever seen. It's so innovative. It's so crisp. Um, it's really, really impressive stuff. Um, and as an agent, you know, previously at my, at my prior brokerage, I was spending a lot of time doing mailers and postcards and, you know, putting out content videos. I now have a full-time staff of 10 uh, that, that serves our brokerage that does, I would say 85% of that for us. Uh, and, and the, quality of content that comes out from Triple Mint's marketing department is just out of control. So, you know, everything is built on helping consumers to have a better, more streamlined and easy experience. And for agents to be able to do more volume and to help more people and to do a better job at, at helping people and effectively communicating, um, which I, I just, you know, I know I sound like I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, but this brokerage is, is really changing the way that things are done. Um, and I'm so excited to be a part of it. And I'm really excited to see where we end up going uh, nationwide over the next, hopefully 10 to 15 years. That's so cool. What does your team itself look like? So when I was at Century 21, I had two agents that worked underneath me. Uh, I, when I left that firm, I have now gone solo um, because a lot of the time that I was spending uh, you know, doing marketing efforts, doing outreach campaigns, calling, you know, potential prospective sellers and expireds. I don't have to do that anymore. Uh, it's, it's all covered by Triple Mint's infrastructure. And so for me, I, it made most sense to go solo and I'm, I'm doing just as much volume, if not more, uh, and not having to split that with anybody other than the firm. 
Wow. So virtual assistants, TCs, all of that? So our RSD department, let me give you a perfect example. So I got a direct lead from our company because like I said, one of the big things about TripleMint is, is lead gen. So I got a direct lead from this gentleman. He has narrowed it down to the exact two condos that he wants to buy it uh, here in Midtown Manhattan in Hell's Kitchen. He's looking either at Mima or the Atelier. We've shopped through every single one bed at the Atelier and at Mima that fits his price point. He's really looking for something that's potentially on a higher floor, or he wants the N line, the G line, or the K line, because those are some of the best in the building. We saw everything that was on the market and nothing really impressed us. So I contacted RSD, who has Black Diamond, to use our predictive technology to figure out who in that building may be the most likely to sell. And we reached out to almost every available seller and we got a hit. It's on a higher floor, it's a nicer unit, it's been more nicely renovated, and I'm showing it to him next Sunday at three o'clock. And I've already met with the seller and this transaction may happen entirely off market. So I basically was able to help my client get access to more of the market because of the infrastructure that TripleMint has built. Uh, and then now we'll get both the sell and buy side of that transaction. That is incredible. Yeah. Amazing. We wow. tell David and Phil, I would like them to come to Denver first. Yes. <laughs> I would imagine that Denver's got to be. So we actually, we just opened um, our Hudson County office in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, and I know that there are some, some greater expansion plans. So I'm, I'm really excited to see where, where this company goes. What is an average transaction time there? Like from the time that you oh, oh, oh. start meeting with your client to the time you close on it? Like, what does that look like? Woof. Uh, <laughs> well, on a condo, it can happen in as fast as about 60 days um, from, from meeting to closing. I have I, that text that I just got was a counter offer uh, on, a, on a condo from some buyers I met about four weeks ago. Um, they want to be closed within the next four or five weeks. And that's totally possible on a condo. In a co-op, once you get an offer accepted and you start to do due diligence period, you're looking at anywhere from 60 to 90 days. Wow. So it's, it's long term here. It is, things are not, like, there is no close in two weeks. That does not exist here. So you, you're in a buyer's market. Big time. Yeah. So um, Colorado, for example, during the downturn had in our, five metro area counties, about 3,000 licensed real estate agents. And now we have about 30,000 licensed real estate agents. So again, I'm not going to do the math, but the large majority of people who are operating in this business in this market at this point in time have not been through a downturn and have never been in a buyer's market. So right. um, I'd love to hear you just speak about the, the challenges of a buyer's market and then also speak to um, you know, what one or two, a couple things that you would tell an agent to prepare for as the shift starts to happen, because the whole country is balancing, which yep. is natural. So, you know, how do they get prepared? What do they need to know? Yeah. So, I mean, for me, when we started to shift from a seller's market to a buyer's market, it was really about 20, beginning of 2017 was when things really started to change. My whole strategy at that point in time in sales was to get listings, because if you had a listing it was going to sell. Uh, that was basically the way it worked. So my whole strategy was to be contacting prospective sellers and trying to get listings. That has completely been flipped on its head. Um, deals are happening. They're just taking longer. Um, you know, signed contracts Q1 are up about 18% in Manhattan now compared to what they were, you know, last January. Um, so there are still deals happening, but 
my focus just had to completely shift. I'm not mailing condos and co-ops anymore for people who are looking to sell. I'm mailing rental buildings and luxury rental buildings and, and trying to get people who are currently paying six, seven, eight thousand dollars a month in rent into a you know $1.5-2 million mortgage. Um, so it, it's it's a complete strategy shift. I would recommend to anybody who is an agent uh, getting ready to prepare for a downturn, I, I would say structure your life so that you can face a 40% drop in your income and, and still be sustained. It's, you know, we live and work in a market-based industry. And if you're not prepared for, for deals to, to stop happening and, and have some nice cushion savings, you got to ramp up your volume now and ramp up your savings account. Um, or find yourself a, another passive income play on the side. <laughs> yeah. Which leads us into what are your passive incomes on the side? Hey, actually, that was a good transition. Um, yeah, so I own and started two new businesses here within the last year. One of them, we are still in the rolling out phase um, and, and still in the new client acquisition phase. But the, the first one is, is really up and running. So um, I own one company called Penrose Living Solutions. We are a furnished corporate rental business. Um, and so what I'm doing is I'm basically working with some of my existing landlords to rent apartments for very long-term periods. Uh, we're talking four and five year long leases in exchange for slightly below market rate rents uh, because the rent is gonna be guaranteed and they won't have that vacancy over the period of time. And I am effectively the leaseholder. Um, and then I am fully furnishing the apartments to the point that they're suitcase ready um, and then re-renting them out at usually about 10 to 15% above the unfurnished market. And then I just make the spread as my profit. Um, Airbnb has been crushed in New York City with a lot of the short-term rental laws. And so I kind of saw an opportunity in the market there for you know short-term corporate housing that's 30 days plus um, that was not being met. A lot of the corporate housing solutions and short-term housing solutions in New York are insanely expensive. We're talking 25 to 30% above unfurnished market value. Um, so for me, you know, this provides an opportunity to, to try and help people who are only going to be here for six months to nine months. Um, or, you know, I have one tenant, he signed an 18 month lease with me. He just didn't want to buy new furniture uh, and really liked what I selected. So he was willing to pay a little bit higher rate uh, in order to have all that furniture. So um, that was really just kind of finding a need in the market and trying to fill it. So um, yeah, so that's the one industry. And then the other industry that uh, I've, I've rolled into is a laundry business. Laundry does not exist in New York City, in New York. <laughs> this is wild to me. That is right. not a thing. Like, okay, I sold an apartment um, about, what was this, two years ago? That for two bedroom apartment for right around $2 million, okay? Window air conditioning units, not central AC, and laundry is not allowed in the building because what? it's a pre war building. So the plumbing literally physically can't support it. So they do not allow laundry to be installed. That's just the way things are here. So if you have washer dryer in, New York, in unit in New York, it is like a gold mine. Um, so what most people have is laundry in building. Um, a lot of buildings will have, you know, kind of laundromats down in the basement or on each floor of their building. And there's, there's a couple companies that really dominate that segment of the market, um, Hercules and CSC to name the two biggest. And one of my landlord clients that I work with, he called me one day and he was like, dude, he's like, I'm, I'm so sick of dealing with, I'm not going to name which of the two companies. Um, and was like, I've studied everything about this business. Let's open our own. Um, and so we 
now have uh, laundry facilities in condos, co-ops, multifamilies across New York and Westchester County. So basically we, we build out the room, we own the equipment, we pay rent to the building to have our equipment there. Um, and then everything else from there that we collect is, is gross profit. I love that idea. I think it's so cool. Um, I like, I could like my mind is like running in like 8,000 directions because you can do so much cool stuff with that. Yeah. That could be like your social hour because if I'm sitting there doing my laundry, first of all, I hate laundry. That's like the yep. thing that I don't do. Um, but that could be like a social time and a great way for you to grow your business, right? Like, And you also just nailed exactly the point of our company too. So uh, our, our company's name is Modern Laundry Co. And if you look at a lot of our marketing and branding, it's very sexy and it's very up to date and it's very trendy. Um, our big thing is like a, a lot of the big laundry companies here in the city, you know, when they come to build out your room in a building, you get these cheap laminate tiles and they're like, all right, well, let's pick what color you want the wall and here's your metal basket and your machines and that's it. We're totally opposite from that. We're not gonna pay as high of rents to buildings, but what we do is we fully build out the room. We're talking beautiful, like, uh, you know, um, hardwood flooring or we'll do like engineered hardwood. We'll do subway tile all the way up hedge walls with neon. We'll do couches, 50 inch 4k flat screen TV, lending library. We amenitize the space instead of making it just a laundry room. Um, a place that tenants and residents actually really want to spend time in rather than, you know, just a scary, dingy, dark, damp basement with mice running across the floor. Uh, so that's, that's the whole point of our business. I envision a laundry facility with a liquor license in your future, my friend. Ooh, that'd be fun. That right? Be fun. That's a freebie for you. <laughs> I like it. I Can like you it. go back and explain just super quickly the like what pre-war is? Because um, my entire like base for knowledge about what that is is Blair Waldorf's pre-war <laughs> uh, gossip girl apartment oh, on fifth. So yeah, what what is I mean like just New York City is so unique. I can't think of another market where we have listeners that will be listening to you from all across the country and they're like, I have no idea what any of this means. So what, what does that mean? Yeah, so pre-war just means it was constructed prior to World War II um, is, is really what it means. And that is a massive amount of our inventory here in the city. A lot of buildings are incredibly old. Um, like my building that I live in right now, uh, you know, this was built in 1988 and that is considered new um, just because there are some places in the city that are, are so, so old. Um, in fact, the building I was talking about that didn't allow laundry and where everybody had window AC, you know, window AC units for two, three, four million dollars plus, I was built in 1904. Um, you know, so there's there's a lot of inventory here that that is all pre-war, and I, I love pre-war apartments. They have amazing details. Um, they have amazing quirks. I, I just I love the character of most pre-war apartments. Is that um status thing pre-war or post because now there's all these I mean I fo I follow a lot of people like on social media that now are building these absolutely crazy ridiculous buildings with like amenities that I've never even heard of in my entire life so <laughs> like what is like if you had all the money in the world I mean I'm sure it's personal preference but like what is the higher status symbol is it a pre-war building or is it Frederick Eklund's brand new skyscraper where they deliver you green juice in your pajamas every morning like what's what it, I think it depends the I, in my book and again this is just from my book I think the most prestigious building in New York City right now and I know I'm gonna upset some people when I say this is is 220 Central Park South 220 Central Park South to me is the most stunning building in all of New York City um, it was just constructed about two years ago um, it, it's a it's a stern building stern is known he's a very famous architect here 
He's known for these beautiful limestone structures. He also did 15 Central Park West, which is another one of the most prestigious buildings in the city. He also did 30 Park Place with the Four Seasons. Um, so the cool thing about, you know, Robert A.M. Stern and a lot of his designs and a lot of his, you know, uh, architectural renderings is they have a lot of pre-war older details in brand new construction. Um, so to me, I, if money were no object, I would be living in 220 Central Park South. That's... Well, it's an average price of a unit there. Uh, well, I did a deal there. Uh, so I can give you some, yeah. So before I moved brokerages, um, the owner of our firm sold a unit. It was apartment 39A. Um, I'm not sure if I can disclose what that sold for yet. Well, I guess it's public record at this point. Um, I think that sold for 26.4 million. Uh, and then I rented the unit. I got the rental listing on it for 65,000 a month, fully furnished. Wow. I said $65,000 a month. Yeah, 65000 per month. That's okay. Okay. U.S. dollars? <laughs> U.S. doll hairs. Yes, 65000 okay, so per month. What is the re... Like, and I'm answering this in 17 different ways as I'm asking it in my own brain, but like, why are you saying that the overwhelming majority of people in New York City are renting is it just because the rent is so damn expensive they can't save the down payment or like do they not want to make the commit like what is the deal here yeah it's twofold it, it, there's, there's really two reasons number one why would you spend sixty five thousand dollars a month That's well I, I'll give you a perfect example so um it, the reason is really twofold number one is like i said the purchase process here is insane it's it's so much more difficult to both buy and sell here in new york than it is anywhere else um, it, there's a lot more that goes into it than there is in, in most other places. Um, and number two, because our equity gains traditionally, we don't have these huge peaks and valleys in New York. Like you see, like I'm from Las Vegas, you know, in 2008, 2009, Vegas lost like 40% of its value in 09. We don't have those huge peaks and valleys here. You know, market gains tend to be prior to this downturn that we had in the last two years, right around like three and a half to 4% per year, just chugging along, chugging along, chugging along. Um, so especially in the ultra luxury market, it takes really like eight to 10 years to get your investment back out. If you're going to get your investment back out, you know, when, when you buy something, I'll give you a perfect example. I had a client, uh, he is the EVP of one of the largest hedge funds here in New York city. Greatest guy. He's one of the nicest people I've ever worked with. And, you know, we had the conversation, they were looking to potentially either rent, uh, or to buy. And he knew that he was going to be relocating to Texas within about three years. And so he, his budget to buy would have been somewhere in the like six to $8 million range. And their budget to rent would have been somewhere around the $30,000 a month range. Um, and, you know, we really broke down the math and we talked about closing costs and acquisition costs. You know, in, in New York City, you have massive taxes when it comes to buying something. We have something called the mortgage recording tax on a condo, uh, which is, is a massive closing cost that you have to incur. Plus, then you have city and state transfer taxes on the way out. Um, and so when you do the math, sometimes, you know, spending, I'm so sorry. Uh, sometimes that's a good sound. So, I mean, something has got good's happening. For you. There's, there's lots going on. Um, <laughs> sometimes spending, you know, $25,000 a month in rent versus plopping down and tying up $8 million in the market here, you're going to be better off leaving that money in the stock market, um, than, than you would, you know, throwing it into a piece of real estate. So it's, it really just depends. 
what does working with celebrities mean to you? Because I look at this totally differently because I don't feel like anyone in the world is a real celebrity. We're all just people. But I feel like the celebrities might make less than some of your other normal clients right? that are probably like, I feel Absolutely like probably true. profiling that happens on a different level there, right? So I would say probably my best known celebrity client. And again, I'm, I'm not unfortunately going to say their names. I'm so sorry. That's okay. We don't need to know. No, that's okay. Uh, I, I will say that they are a very prominent cast member on SNL. Um, and it would shock you that most people who work in finance or work in fashion, they're making a lot more money. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that. Sorry. I want to know, I want to know your viewpoint, if you're willing to talk about it on yeah. the politics of all of this absolutely insane legislature and rules that create this very strange ecosystem of a housing market that is absolutely bonkers to 99% of the rest of the country. Yep. So like your viewpoint, and then what is the viewpoint of most New Yorkers? Like, do we wish that we would ease up on this? And create, I mean, to me, this is like, like not free market. Like this is it's bizarre. Not. It's bizarre to me. So what is the overwhelming, you know, right now politically, um, a hot button topic that everybody's talking about is what's happening in California, which is creating a mass exodus because of the politics and the taxes in California to places like here and to places like Texas. And um, they're not quite understanding that like some of the stuff that's coming down the pike is like, it's not going as far as New York City, but like what, this is crazy to me. Do you want to hear the most ironic thing that, that I don't know, I, I haven't, I'm not sure what else goes on your show, but maybe some of the biggest irony that's been on your show thus far. I moved to New York City, a loudmouth liberal. I was a precinct captain for Obama's campaign in 2008. Uh, I was in the arts community, and you know, I I believed at the time that you know liberalism meant standing up and fighting for equal rights for all people and ensuring that people are protected under the law. And after almost seven years of living in New York City, I am a registered Republican and a conservative. This, and and living in New York City did it to me. Um, you know, not to get well. Too you're high. living with some of the biggest capitalists in the entire world there too. Let's talk about that. And, and here's the other thing too. I don't really mention that to a lot of clients here. I am very quiet about my politics because this is a liberal bubble. Right. Um, but you know, let's let's just kind of look at the facts of it, right? Let's let's take away you know sort of the the political intonations, but but let's kind of look at the facts of what's happened. So, in relation to my concerns for the future of New York City's housing market, one of my biggest concerns is our new new bail reform bill. Okay. So after January 1st, cash bail has been effectively eliminated in New York City. We don't know private. what that is. Uh, you, you mean bailing, just go back. You yeah. have more yeah. lo like laws, I'm convinced right, right now than- Yeah, their own language, it's like the military. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. so go back, so, what is that? Okay, so we, we had a bail reform bill. So California had something similar passed yes. a few years ago. Um, we had a bail reform bill that came through our assembly this past year. And that bail reform bill basically said after January 1st that if you are arrested and uh, accused, and, and I wanna be careful with that word there, accused of a class E felony or below, uh, that there is no more cash bail. Meaning that, okay, previously the way it worked when you got arrested, right? Let's say I'm a big car guy. Let's say I got busted street racing, right? And an officer arrested me. What would happen is I would, you know, go down to a holding cell. I would get booked in. I would go before the magistrate. They determine what my bail amount is. I either post the bail or, you know, I find a bondsman to post bond for me. Uh, and then they hold that until my court date. And then if I show up for my court date, I get the money right back. 
Um, after January 1st, for Class E felonies and below in New York City, there is no more cash bail. So meaning, I could right now walk downstairs and punch a police officer in the face, and they would take me to jail, and I would be home in time for dinner. Um, so crime is up almost 30% in New York City since the first of the year. And I'm not talking about, you know, minor crimes. I'm, I'm talking about violent crime. Uh, we're talking about slashings on the subway. We're talking about robberies. Um, there was a serial bank robber. I read about this two days ago. Been arrested four times before. He was arrested again, like a couple weeks ago. And because of the new bail law, got right back out. And guess what? He robbed his fifth bank uh, mm -hmm. the, the very next day. So, you know... Th that is that is one piece of the puzzle. So let's make it impossible for people to buy houses, but super easy to get out of jail. Excellent. We we have a politician right now um, by the name of Julia Salazar. Mm -hmm. She is in District 18 from Brooklyn, and there is a fascinating article. And by fascinating, I also mean terrifying. Um, in the Real Deal, which is a real estate publication here in New York, talking about her views about housing and how housing is commoditized. And she does not believe that housing should be commoditized, meaning she effectively doesn't believe in private property ownership rights. Um, and she is not she is not shy about that. She calls herself an open market Marxist and democratic socialist. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the election and what I think that's going to mean. Whether you're right on the left or on the right, you know, I, I think the most important thing we can do is we can look at at facts and and take facts first. And you know what what certain policies will mean for the U.S. housing market and the U.S. economy. Um, I spent about two hours yesterday doing a deep dive after the debate on Bernie Sanders' housing policy. He's proposing a 25% flip tax on all investment properties that are owned for less than five years. He's proposing a 2% pietitarian investment tax on all non-owner occupied residences. Uh, he's proposing a 3% cap or 1.5% consumer price index cap on all rents with no respect for what property taxes do, with no respect for how water costs go. What most people don't understand if you're not in this industry is the way that these laws are actually squeezing investors to the point that it makes no sense for them to own multifamily property anymore. Everybody in New York thinks that every landlord here is Donald Trump. And that is not the case. It's just not the truth. Most landlords here are making very modest returns, very modest. A, a good cap rate here, capitalization rate, for anybody listening who's not familiar, um, is about 2 to 3%. You're lucky sometimes if you can get a 4 to 5% cap, like really lucky. Um, cash flow here is very low. So I, I'll give you one perfect example. We were talking about the rent reforms that happened this past June. I have a landlord who uptown... He, speci he specializes in distressed asset properties. So there's a block of buildings that he owns on uh, Amsterdam Avenue uh, up in, in Hamilton Heights. And there's six buildings together. Almost all of them are 100% rent stabilized units. After those bills were passed, um, all of his rents were effectively frozen. Property taxes are up almost 40% uh, in the last six years in New York City. Water costs are up almost 50% over the last 10 years in New York City. And his J51A tax credit for providing affordable housing is sunsetting. So his taxes are going to go up by $300,000 and he can't increase revenue one penny. I understand the, the premise and the idea that we want to create a more affordable and sustainable housing market for everybody. 
but these types of regulations are not the way to do it. The biggest problem facing New York developers and facing New York residents is, is not, you know, this idea of greedy landlords. Everybody blames all these, you know, amazing restaurants for closing on greedy landlords and they want to pass these new vacancy taxes. Commercial rents are down 20%. What, what you know, most restaurant owners and coffee shop owners can't afford are the tax increases on these triple net leases and they can't afford, you know, this new $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, so, it's it's not the greedy landlords that are cutting everybody out. It's there's just a misunderstanding of math uh, and and you know how that kind of plays into the system here. So I, I really hope that the pendulum swings the other direction in New York. Um, I I keep telling people I really don't care who you vote for for president. I really don't care who you, for you vote for for Congress. But here in New York City, this pendulum's got to swing back the other way um, because we we're losing residents. Landlords, the multifamily housing stock is just going to start to absolutely deteriorate unless some of these laws are reversed or changed. Um, and I'm really afraid of what they're trying to pass in this next legislative session. There's been it's some just, reversed. You're my yeah, new best ahead. friend, by the way. So every time I want to talk yeah. politics and economics, I'm going to call you and we can nerd Same. out together. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. If you want even just a pendulum swing from a buyer's to a seller's market, and I only have an analogy for my own market, it's different for you, but you know, in order to want people to come to your city or have people come to your city, you need rooftops, but yep. you can't get rooftops if you make it so difficult for developers and builders with legislation that keeps them from being able to build those rooftops for you. Yep. So you're effectively just completely stifling the growth of your own city. I have a developer client that I work with and he and I had lunch about a month ago. And one of the things he was talking about is he, he was saying, he's like, dude, you have no idea how much I would love to build more market rate housing and yes. things that every New Yorker could afford, but it costs, you know, 200,000, $300,000 in permits and applications yes. just to get shovels in the ground. And so of course they have to build it a thousand dollars a square foot. Of course they have to build it $2,000 a square foot. Um, you know, the pure cost of getting shovels in the ground is, is insane. Yes. And, you know, like I said, there's that mixed argument about rent stabilization. Is it good? Is it bad? You know, we're, we see a lot of units of inventory that are all tied up and uh, that are being padlocked because it's better for landlords to write off that loss than renting an apartment to somebody for life for $700 a month. And so it's artificially starving the market and starving inventory. Um, I just wish Albany would listen to us and, and, you know, see that like, we're not trying to make a political ploy. We're trying to warn you about what you're trying to do to yeah. our industry that we work in every single day. It's basic economics. It really yeah. is. I mean, if people would actually study and bring it back to schools and show what's going to happen when you raise this tax or when you do this, people would have a better understanding. And I think unfortunately our generation was, was lost with that, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, going back to my soapbox, I mean, <laughs> our generation and our age group has a huge responsibility, and I hope that everybody that's listening, regardless of generation, hears this. Um, policy affects the market, which affects your job, which affects your family, which affects everything. And if you want to continue operating a business in which you're earning top 1% of income, for everybody in the entire United States, you need to get off your ass and turn off Netflix 
and get involved and that's it. And I really quite frankly don't care what side you get involved in, but you have a responsibility to, I mean, this isn't just, it's like, I think people think that like this stuff happens in a cloud that's like completely isolated from real life, but you don't understand it affects everything in your real life. And you're going to be five or 10 years down the road complaining about what happened to your business and what happened to your life if you don't do something about it. So get involved. Yeah, I, I literally could not agree more. Um, yeah, and these these bills were passed out of activism. They weren't passed to be good policy. They, they were passed to punish landlords in New York City. And that, that was the intent. Um, you know, the bill, the bill was rushed through in, in a midnight vote. The real estate industry was shut out from ever being able to listen uh, to public arguments or make public arguments. Uh, it, it was just rushed through to, to make a statement rather than to create good policy. And that, that's a problem. Um, you know, there's two sides to every story and somewhere in the middle lies the truth. And I think, you know, people, here's what I say about politics in general, right? Especially somebody who has undergone a major transformation from one side of the aisle to the other. I think what a lot of people lose sight of is that we're not partisans first, we're Americans first. We all want the same things for our communities and for our country. We want, we want a safe, prosperous, just United States of America. We mostly all have the same goals. We just have different ways of getting there. Getting and I there. think if, if we spend time listening to each other about you know, what our goals are and, and debating those, those strategies about how to get there, we'll find that we have a lot more in common than we have that divides us. Exactly, yes. Yeah. It's almost verbatim, like that what you just said is almost verbatim what I have said for years and years and years because you're 100% spot on. Yeah. So I don't know. I hope things change in New York. Um, I, I don't know. We'll see. Time will tell. Our next mayoral election is going to say a lot. Um, there's a couple candidates that I think are going to make Bill de Blasio look uh, moderate, which, which is pretty frightening. So I don't know. We'll see. So I have a question about your mother, um, the real yeah. What is the number one thing you learned about her, like learned from her that you use today in real estate? Because you had to have learned something over like the time that she was a realtor, right? So what is like the number one thing that you learned? The best thing that my mom ever taught me, bar none. Uh, she, and she said this to me more than once, is she said, if you, if you treat clients like a transaction, all you will ever get in your life are transactions. Mm. If you treat every person you encounter as a relationship to be built and nurtured, um, then you'll have a book of business and a sphere of influence that will, will serve you your entire career and lifelong. And it just could not be more accurate. And that's, that's the way I try to approach every single transaction. And I'm so thankful that, uh, you know, I had her to mentor me and guide me in, in that respect. Is she still in real estate? Or is she, she is. So is she it, yeah. <laughs> um, Vegas, Vegas basically had an atom bomb set off in 0809. Um, my mom was operating a team that was, you know, starting to finally have some success um, during the boom in 0405, 06. And um, then 0809 happened mm. and everybody lost everything. And so, um, you know, it was a struggle for a few years. My mom left the business. Um, and then she went to work for a construction company for a little while as an admin assistant. And then there was a job that opened up at a new firm in Vegas and she's now their managing broker and general manager. So awesome. uh, she's still in the business, but she's not on the sales side. Gotcha. That's awesome. Yeah. So 
I have like a, I'm a reality TV whore. Like, let's just. just <laughs> okay. Awesome. I mean, it just does what it is. So is it really like as, as dick heady as it seems? <laughs> no, not like, even. Is that really all for show? Yes. Well, no, I shouldn't say the TV's, the, the TV show is all for show. Um, nothing is scripted. If anybody was wondering, uh, the show is not scripted at all. Sometimes the producers will ask you, you know, say, can you say that again the same way you did? Um, but it, it's not scripted, but it's also not as dramatic as everybody makes it out to be. Uh, we're not closing deals in restaurants with our clients sitting across from us or, or via text that way. It's, it's a, it takes a little bit more time. Um, but yeah, and, and I've done deals. I, I did a deal with Frederick not too long ago. Obviously, I work with Tyler. Um, I have the most amazing things in the world to say about both of them. Um, I, you know, Steve is a friend of mine as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not everything that it appears, but there's, there's some truth behind it. How's them all, we want right? them on our show. We do. Wait, say that again? I said, tell them all, we want them on our show. Yeah, we're going to need oh, the yeah. audio hookup. Totally. That'd be amazing. I can try and get Tyler over here. Yeah, tell Tyler. I sent him a message on Instagram. And oh, did you? Okay. They answer me. <laughs> you absolutely have the face and the hair right? and the brain for the brain. It. Actually, you. I'm sorry. Your brain is above reality TV, but you have <laughs> you you are yeah. You're you're ready. I've been, for, I've been on up. the show. I've been on the show like eight times now. I've had little small yep. appearances, so I've been I've been on it a few times. What is it? What I mean, what is that experience like? You know, it's it's really interesting. Um, it, it's so most of the time you get an invite from either Frederick or from Steve or from Tyler um, or from one of the producers that you know, hey, we're we're shooting this open house. We'd like you to come. And then from there, you know, pretty much everything gets set up and running, and it's the cameras are just running almost the entire time. Um, there's not there's not too much slowdown or interruption unless the producers are really like, hey, wait. I really like what you just said. Can we recapture that type of thing? But otherwise it's it's very it's very straightforward. Are those parties and the things that they show, are those like real? Like, do you guys really do that for open houses? Are you guys really spending $25,000 on open houses to sell these properties? Or is that really for show? Sometimes, seriously, sometimes they are. Um, it, it really depends. Like <clears throat> when you have a really, really premier listing, for example, like Frederick had that townhouse listing that never ended up selling with the pool party, right? Um, a lot of the brokers that he invited to that were really skilled agents that have a lot of very, very wealthy clients. Um, so, you know, that one, yeah, that was a very real brokers open. Um, it just kind of depends on the individual scene and scenario, but I've never thrown a $25,000 party uh, and I've also never had an expired listing. So, uh, you know. I was about to say, like, what does a new agent do? Mortgage their house to go get the money right? to sell that, but you don't even have a house to mortgage. So, like, <laughs> swipe, swipe. Like, how does this? Uh, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it just depends. Um, we were planning on throwing a huge broker's open for that rental at 25 Central Park West. I'm sorry, not 20, for 220 Central Park South. Um, and we ended up renting it before we got the opportunity to, but like we were budgeting about $10,000 uh, for, for live music and for champagne. I was going to be paying a bunch of Instagram influencers to come there, um, you know, and, and to really start marketing the apartment that way. So, but we ended up renting it before I got the chance to, to plan the party. I mean, like agents in our market, I'm not joking you. Like this is a common thing every single day, all day long. 
I don't want to pay $199 for a professional photographer. Oh, so, like, I, just, I just hope that people are listening. Uh-huh. Like what you do it to me is art right. on, a, on a different level than what we do because mm-hmm. it Absolutely. is so much bigger and so much more drawn out. So like, I hope that people here, um, you ha- you investing in your business, like you, you have to do it. That's well, let, me, let me just say, if there are other agents out there listening right now, if, if you are posting phone uh, photos from your iPhone or from your click snapshot oh, camera hi. from 2002, get <laughs> out. Because your clients are paying way too high of a, of a service fee. Like a, a real estate commission is one of the highest service fees anybody will ever pay. They are paying way too much money for you to scrimp on marketing and to be losing them tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, because you can't be bothered to spend a few hundred bucks on a photographer. Like, get out. Oh, I love you. Just <laughs> I love church. you too. Preach it. That's theft. You know, just like, it's, it's, it's just wrong. And you're just not doing anybody any favors that way. Yeah. I 150,000% agree with that. Yeah. Um, so we have an idea for a show here in Colorado that's like million dollar listing, um, but it's like three hundred thousand dollar listing, and hey. I feel like it's going to be extra epic. Can you uh, even buy anything for three hundred grand in Colorado anymore? You oh, can. Yeah. You can. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. down. We'll help you out. Median price in Denver though is like in the fives now, isn't it? It is. Yeah, wow. we went three three years. We went, and don't quote me on that, but I I. At least it's for sure five years, but I'm almost positive three years. We went from an average sales price in the mid threes to the mid fives. See, yeah. and we were we were at a median price of almost one seven prior to 2017, and now we're down to about one four one. It's wow. two hundred thousand where I'm at. Yeah, about really? four hundred where I am. Wow! You can get crazy. a brand new built home, thirty five hundred square feet on an acre for two ninety. What? Yeah. Oh man! Who in New Yorkers? Must that one after class. Come to Denver. Come to Denver. We have mountains and other things, and it's. Oh, Colorado! I miss it. I really do. So, what other projects have you done as far as acting goes? Um, I did the national tour of Shrek. Um, I I played Shrek on the national tour for about it was about a year. Um, and then can you do that? I need you to do that Scottish accent, please. Oh Lord, what am I? Dance monkey dance? Yes. (laughs) Favorite song. Are you theater? Like, were you a theater guy? Or yeah, you a, I yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, need, I need you to do it. Listen here, little donkey. There is no us. There is no we. There is just me and my swamp. <laughs> you are my favorite human alive, officially. <laughs> I can't wait to play that back 8,000 times. I'm can sure you, you will. Can you go back and talk about the politics in the Shrek voice? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> okay so let's go to let's get away from the city lights let's yeah go the real estate world you're like some drag racing from what i hear so tell me yep. a little bit about it what do you you're in a city where's the drag strip <laughs> i know you're I like if i get arrested in new york city for driving and i'm like for what like for two <laughs> like, like, what i know I know, I get asked that even by New York City residents. People are like, you have a car here? Um, yeah, there's not a huge car community in New York. I, I've been around cars my whole life. Uh, it's one thing I can't give up. So um, yeah, I, I have a Shelby GT500. She is my baby um, and she lives in Queens. I take the train 30 minutes to go get the car. 
Um, it's a toy. I, I use it six months out of the year. Um, I think I've put 4,500 miles on it since I bought it last April and 2,000 of that was a road trip to Tennessee and back. So um, yeah, it's a toy. I, I haven't driven it since November 4th. Do you go to yeah. the drag strip? Like, is there a drag strip outside the city? There's a few. So there's Atco, which is about an hour and a half away in New Jersey. Um, and then there's another place I love to go called Wurtsboro, which is an abandoned airport um, that we do airport drags at, uh, which is all grudge racing. No times. It's, it's all grudge racing. Um, and then you have Island Drag Ray, which is meh. And then Maple Grove in Pennsylvania is about two hours away. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, you got to drive a little while. I'm going to Pocono with a few friends sometime early spring. That's about an hour and a half from here. Oh, cool. Okay. Bring it down here because Angela is, I, I mean. I'm ready. Yeah, bring, you, I'm yeah, ready for it. you're going to have to like put it in a crate and have it shipped down you know, here, but. <laughs> honestly, I thought maybe I would ship my car out there. Yes. Um, yeah. And we could totally go. I mean, I'm totally down. Shipping is great. I, I, bought, I shipped my car when I bought it. Um, I yeah. actually bought this car out of California um, in Los Angeles and I had it shipped in New York City when I got it. Well, I'm very racing. excited. They can go it's, drag racing and we'll go shopping in the city. <laughs> I'm so good with that. I would way better, way rather than love shopping. to go with you. Yeah, having a car in New York is, is purely like, it better be a toy. Nobody needs a car here. You don't drive here. Um, the parking garage directly across the street from me uh, for a monthly space is seven fifty. So there's some garages around the city that are over a thousand a month for. Do you have a driver? I do not. Um, I I have Uber and we Uber everywhere. Even better. Yeah. yeah. So Denver's different in the sense that like our metro area is so sprawling. Yeah. That I will sometimes drive close to three hundred miles in a day. Oh. So like I have. And uh, as, there were times where I was doing that seven days a week for like years. Wow. So I was like, at one point, I need a driver because like you can't get anything done. Can't answer. No. I mean, uh, yeah, I answered that while I was driving. I shouldn't be. Yeah. See, you know what? That's funny because I'm sure you guys spend a lot of time on the phone, right? Yeah. We almost everything here is done via text and email because it's, I, I'm on the train half the day bouncing back and forth to appointments. So I'm underground. I can't answer a phone call. Mm. So most agents here do everything via text and email. That counter offer that just came through is via text message. That's awesome. That's so interesting. That's so weird. Yeah. So yeah, cars, car ownership here is a luxury. I am the psychopath that, that owns a car in New York City. Um, <laughs> I, I have that garage out in Astoria just because it's a lot cheaper. I only pay two fifty a month for parking. Um, it's in the bottom of a townhouse. It's a one car garage. Nobody bothers me. Um, so that's nice. I mean, I bother the neighbors. I feel really bad every time I start that thing up. But uh, yeah, it's- You never it's, feel bad about that ever. <laughs> it's loud. It is real loud. I bet. I bet in a garage like that even more. It's like an- oh yeah. oh yeah. Oh yeah. You can, you can hear a cold start on that car from about two blocks away. Yes. <laughs> Good That's like you. the best sound on the planet. So. It is. It is. 644 horsepower of, of pure American glory. Woo! My <laughs> husband has my husband has 420 on his two wheels. Oh, that is insane. I can't even imagine what that's like on a bike. 197 miles per hour from dead stop to quarter mile. Wow. In 7.8 seconds. See, my car runs the quarter in high tens. Um, Which is I'm, good. Yeah, it's it's a high 10 second car, but I, I just can't even imagine that on a motorcycle. But that's on sea level, Kristen. Yeah, we're <laughs> at sea level here. 
Down in Colorado, it's 12. In the mountains. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yep. I look forward to giving you a run for your money. I would love to. Hey, I used to go to Bandemir when I was in college, so I, I, I miss it. Well, we were just talking before we got on the call today yeah. that they're trying to build some houses around Bandemir and get rid I of it. I saw that. What if they're trying to get rid of Bandemir? It won't happen. There's no way. That There's part no of Morrison is some of the most valuable property in the city because it sits right there at the mountains. And the people oh, but they that, did that yeah, they built that Sorry, Saltera, go ahead. yeah, I think is what you're talking about. When they built Saltera, which is that community that's directly across the right. highway, those are high-end homes and all those people do is bitch about the noise. So. Well, but like, okay, Laguna Seca in California, that's one of the mm -hmm. most famous racetracks in America. And about 10 years ago, they developed a ton of homes right around Laguna Seca. And now everybody's complaining about the noise, but I'm like, you consensually bought a house next right. to one of the most famous <laughs> racetracks in America. Why yeah. are you complaining? Right. Like, you, you signed the deed. You know what, what you were buying. Right. <laughs> well, you're from Las Vegas, so I'm sure you know about Pahrump and the condos there at the yep. Corvette racing track. Like, that yep. is, like, some of the coolest – that's the coolest idea ever. I yeah. would live there in a second. Las right. Vegas Motor Speedway is amazing, too, and it's way out there, so nobody's ever going to yeah. mess with that. Well, can I ask, like, a burning question for me? Um, yeah. Because my whole life revolves around food. Um so we're going to come out there eventually and we're going to take Great. you to dinner. Um, so that's going to happen. So you can't say no to it. So awesome. Okay. I'm in. Um, where is legit. Okay. So best pizza chain and non-chain restaurant. Oh man. You know, everybody, yeah, these are the questions, man. I know everybody always asks that. And it's such a hard question. I'm always inclined to say best pizza in New York city is, is, is artichoke, but it's not like true New York style pizza. It's a very oh. thick, pizza if you guys have ever been there right so, chicago style kind of yeah like artichoke pizza though is amazing but it's not really like new york style um that's to me that's the best pizza in new york i don't know that's i know i'll probably get some hate from some fellow new yorkers for that okay, my so opinion it, is like the ones that are just like on the side of the street like when you're walking around some of those are bomb like i live right above a pizzeria that's really darn good called claudia oh, yeah. See, my whole family is from new york and so we're you know we're there a lot we're coming my mom and i were just talking about coming out in june is yeah. actually thing about coming again so Amazing. So she gets really to ask time. about pizza. I'm a theater nerd. I, I was a theater kid. So yeah. um, then I get to ask about your favorite Broadway show. Oh, favorite of all time. Oh, that's hard. You know, it's almost um, impossible, isn't it? it I'm like really into is. the heavies, like Miss Saigon and Phantom. And like, I do I mean, love Miss Saigon. I, I love like Wicked and all the newer like lighter fun stuff, but that's not like theater to me. Probably, but. and I know, God, I, I feel this is so cliche to say, uh, I love West Side Story. Oh. That, that show will always forever be one of my favorites. And um, you feel pretty. One, one that's less popular, <laughs> I love Assassins. If you guys know Assassins at all, that show is yes. amazing. Um, but yeah, probably West Side Story of, of the big ones that everybody knows. Do you go a lot since you're there? Not as much as I used to, which is really sad. Um, but I mean, occasionally, like we'll, we'll try and catch a show every once in a while, which is so sad. I live in the theater district. I feel um, like that I, means that you're becoming a New Yorker though. Cause like none of my yeah. family goes, like when we say stuff like that, they're like, what are like, that's not even like a real thing. <laughs> I live five blocks from Times Square. Um, and so it's like, I'm right in the heart of the theater district. So it's kind of sad that I like don't go, but I should. Well, we'll do that too when we come to visit. Okay, cool. Or you're stuck with us now. Great, works for me. <laughs>
I'm like flabbergasted by like how New York is a whole nother world. Like literally, it's like you guys are not even on this planet after hearing. So different. Yeah, everything is so different here from, from our industries to our food to like the way that life is lived. It's just totally different from the rest of the country. But I'd like, also like to commend you on like, you are so knowledgeable in a, like to come from a place like Vegas <laughs> to go into Manhattan with all these nuances and like subtext that's happening. Like you sound like very, very knowledgeable in a short Thank period you. of time. That's right. You know, I, I'm the type of person and I'm of the mindset that like you can never, ever, ever stop learning or know everything. I think one of my favorite things about the real estate industry is that I still learn something new every single day. Mm -hmm. um, and so to me, I'm always trying to learn as much as I can. Like even when I'm working from home or at the office, you know, I always have podcasts going on in the background or I'm, I'm trying to listen to, you know, um, various different media sources, both local and national. So I, I'm just always trying to learn as much as possible because I think as real estate agents, being as knowledgeable on, on uh, as many topics as possible is, is a huge asset to us. And um, so, yeah, that's it's important to me. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you what, like I certainly learned there's so many reasons why somebody should use you. And I think really like your knowledge is incredible. I have a couple of other friends who are real estate agents in New York and really and truly, I haven't learned anything <laughs> from them. <laughs> so, I mean, that is very transparent that, that are very obvious that um, this is your passion is the education side of things. And I'm sure your clients appreciate it as well. Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I, I try to, you know, um, I, there are too many, <laughs> oh, this is controversial to say. There are too many people in the city that are like yoga instructors part-time and dog walkers who like also maybe have a real estate license. Mm -hmm. And you know, whether, whether you work with them or whether you work with me, you're going to pay the same commission amount. Um, you might as well get the best agent for your money. And so that's one of the things that I really try to do to stand out from everybody. We really appreciate all your time today and spending time with us and letting us get to know you. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys, thank you so much for having me on. It was so good to meet all of you. And next time I'm in Colorado, I'm, I'm definitely going to have to come and say hello to everybody. We'll have to get drinks in Denver. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be Love even easier to get you drunk and take advantage of me, right? Hey, yeah, there we go. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> all right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Awesome. Thanks so much. Bye, y'all. We hope you loved our show today. If you enjoyed it, do the homegirls a favor and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. Share this episode with all of your homegirls and friends and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at homegirlsco.